Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll pick up our exposition verse number 17 this morning. Verse number 17, as we make our way verse by verse through Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 17. These are the words of God. But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. So ordain I in all churches. Is any man being circ- called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called, being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's free man. Likewise also he that is called, being free, is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men." Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Where were you when the Lord saved you? When I ask this, I'm not referring to physical location, but rather to your station in life. Were you single or were you married? Were you a child or were you an adult? Were you a student or were you in the workforce? Were you in the military, or were you a stay-at-home mother, a homemaker? However you may answer these questions, it is very likely that when the Lord saved you, there were certain aspects of your life that were less than ideal. There were outward circumstances that you wanted to change now that you had become a Christian. The same was true of many in the Corinthian church. They believed that they had to make certain outward changes concerning the circumstances of their life now that they had been converted. And in these verses, Paul will lay out, explain, and apply a very important principle. That principle is this. When the gospel first comes to you and you place your saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought not be frantically concerned with changing the circumstances of your life but rather how you might serve Jesus Christ in the midst of those circumstances. The title of my message today is Called in Your Calling. Called in Your Calling. You must remember that God takes you where you are, not where you should have been. The question that the new convert should ask is, how do I serve God right where I am? Immediately upon the moment of your conversion, the the moment of your salvation, you have just been drafted into the army of the Lord. And your immediate concern would be, how do I serve God right where I am? And this is the principle that will be explained for us in this text, verses 17 through 24. As with every portion of Scripture, context is key. Location, location, location. Well, this passage comes to us uh, somewhat parenthetical. Because it's in the midst of a broader discussion on the topic of marriage. 
in some ways, it's, it's almost awkward. These verses, just in the midst of, you know, Paul is talking to, to married people and, and widows and widowers and people on the, on the verge of a divorce and a mixed marriage. And then in verse 25, he picks right back up. He starts talking to virgins and single people. And then right in the middle of this, this chapter, we find this verse, As God has distributed to every man, you know, walk in your calling. The specific application of this passage certainly is in the, in the broader context of believers who are in a marriage with an unbeliever. That's the broader context. You'll remember that Paul addressed that situation directly and he taught that Christians should not divorce their unbelieving spouses simply because they're not a Christian. The gospel did not come to break up marriages. That's not one of the purposes of the gospel. The gospel did not come to break up families. Sometimes the gospel divides. Uh, sometimes tensions between believers and unbelievers cause familial relationships to be rough and even severed, but that's not the, the primary focus of the gospel. The gospel came to unite. Well, verses 17 through 24 are a continuation of Paul's argument in which he admonishes Christians to serve God in whatever station of life God saves them in, and that includes the circumstance of being married to an unbeliever. But, like much of this section in 1 Corinthians, the principles of the text apply beyond their immediate audience. So, the, the principle of abide in your calling, serve God where you are, doesn't only apply to people in a mixed marriage, Christians in a mixed marriage. It, it applies beyond that, but we'll only rightly apply it beyond that when we first understand the context. That's why I mentioned this context to you. The structure of this passage is also quite interesting. Paul repeats his thesis statement three times. Once at the beginning, once in the middle, once at the end. As if to really stress and drive home the central theme of this passage. Paul gives his thesis statement in verse 17. He then provides a supporting example in verse 18. Then he closes in verse 19 with a concluding argument. However... In verse 20, it's as if he just restarts. He repeats his thesis statement again. He gives another example, and he then closes by restating his thesis and giving a concluding argument. Certainly, this repetition, though, is no accident. Paul is doing this on purpose. He wants us to really understand this principle, and he wants us to see some illustrations of it. So, I'm going to outline the text just like that. I'm going to give you a principle... I'm going to give you an illustration of that principle, and uh, then we'll, we'll have a concluding argument, but halfway through we'll restart that outline and, and follow along as Paul lays this out for us. So, um, in, in verse 17, I want you to see the, the illustration, the principle. And he says, he begins with a but. Now, anytime we, we start reading and we see a but, or a therefore, or a wherefore, or because of this, we have to first ask the question, but what? Therefore, what? I mean, what, 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 are, you, what are you building upon, Paul? And we see here that uh, this point, uh, this but here, it's pointing us back to the context of the previous section. There were members of the Corinthian church in mixed marriages, believers married to unbelievers. And they worried that their circumstance would hinder their ability to serve God. 
Perhaps they even asked the question, is my marriage to an unbeliever going to hinder the power and presence of God in my life? And so Paul is careful to include this section uh, uh, where he will reassure them of one, that God is the Lord of our circumstances. God is the Lord of our circumstances. And two, that God is with us in the midst of our circumstances. So he says, but as God hath distributed to every man, as God hath distributed to every man, God is sovereign over the circumstances of our life. It is God who distributes the events and happenings and experiences to each one of our lives. God is the one who assigns us our place in life. God is the one who appoints us to a certain condition in life. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, and not a single detail of our life happens apart from His decree. If you don't have this view of this full orb sovereignty of God over all things, you won't understand what Paul is saying. In fact, what Paul is saying would actually be cruel if God were not the sovereign over the circumstances. He says, As God hath distributed to every man, then he says this, As the Lord hath called every one. Now, you might read that and just think, well, that's just Paul saying the same thing in two different ways, but it's not. Uh, he's, he's shifting his focus to something more specific because God is also sovereign over our salvation. Overwhelmingly, when the Bible speaks of the call of God or what it means to be called by God, it doesn't just refer to a mere invitation, but it refers to the sovereign, efficacious, effectual call whereby God, through the Spirit, issues a call that brings about salvation in its recipient. You could read this as, as the Lord hath distributed to every man as the Lord hath saved everyone. So there's also our context. Paul is talking to saved individuals in this text. When it talks about God calling us, it's talking about the manner and the means whereby He brought about our salvation. And you must understand that, that the doctrine of Molinism is incorrect. God did not just set up the circumstances so that it would be likely for your salvation to occur. The doctrine of Arminianism is, is a lie whereby God didn't know at all if you would be saved. Uh, he just uh, issued a call and whoever came to Him, He was just really surprised in heaven when you decided by your own free will to repent and believe in Him. It's a very low view of God and, and the plan of redemption. But rather what we understand is that God ordained every detail of our salvation. Not a single aspect of our salvation happened by accident. The man who was preaching the gospel at the moment we believed, or the woman who handed us a gospel tract, uh, the, the, the time that we opened up the scriptures and read about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the day of our salvation, the time of our salvation, the place of our salvation, were all according to the plan of God. It must be that way uh, if salvation truly is the work of the Lord. Now, if it's partly the work of the Lord and partly the work of man, then yes, I, I suppose your salvation could have happened by chance or by accident. But if salvation, let me say, since salvation is entirely the work of God, then He is the one who orchestrates it to occur. And when God saved you, 
He did so knowing full well the situation of your life. That's what Paul is saying to us. He did not save you at the wrong time. He did not save you too late in life. I understand the feeling. I understand the sentiment where some people will say, who are saved later in life, well, they'll say, I wish the Lord would have saved me when I was younger. And they mean that in, 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 in great sincerity, meaning they wish they would have had more time to serve Christ. But we must understand, God didn't save us late. He saved us on time. God didn't reveal certain truths to us too early or too late. God didn't bring us to a certain church too early or too late. He did it in His perfect timing. And God knew exactly what He was doing when He decreed the circumstances of your life and He decreed your salvation in the midst of those circumstances. This truth is where we must begin in order to receive the principle that comes next. This isn't the principle. These are the presuppositions that we must receive in order to receive the principle. Here's the principle. Verse 17. He says, So let him walk. Now the word walk here has the idea of continuance or remaining or perseverance. Paul's principle is this. Because your life situation is God assigned and because your salvation is God ordained, be content to remain in that station after receiving the saving grace of God. Really, this passage is about spiritual maturity and contentment in the providence of God. Now, at this point, we must remember the immediate context of this instruction applies to marriage. So, immediately, what this text is saying to us is, if God saves you while single, don't feel the need to rush into a marriage. And if God saves you while you're married to an unbeliever, you don't need to divorce your spouse. You need to remain in the condition that the Lord saved you in. Even when your circumstances are less than ideal, Your circumstances will never be perfect. Sometimes they're less ideal than others. We ought not grumble and complain about the timing of our salvation. We ought not be... I've talked with Christians that express anger towards God that He didn't save them sooner. What a blasphemous thing to do. If we want to talk about what God should have done, He shouldn't have saved you at all. But He did. Because of His grace. Because of His mercy. A Christian married to an unbeliever might be tempted to complain to God and say, Lord, if you would have saved me when I was younger, I wouldn't have married him or I wouldn't have married her. But remember, the the same God that ordained your salvation also ordained your marriage. And he doesn't take you from where you should have been. He takes you from where you are. And he sanctifies you and he saves you. And he doesn't call you to dwell on the mistakes you made before you were converted. He doesn't call you to live with the guilt of mistakes you made when you were lost. He calls you to live for Him now. Live for Him now. At the heart of this principle is contentment with the providence of God in our lives. So the question is, does this principle apply beyond the context of marriage? Yes, it does. But only with careful qualifications lest we misinterpret this text. For example, when Paul says to remain in your station in life, he is not teaching that Christians should remain in behavior that is objectively sinful after their conversion. 
If you're a drug dealer and God saves you, you need to find a new line of work. Okay? Don't say, well, I'm going to remain in my, in my calling. If you're living with your boyfriend, if you're living with your girlfriend, if you're a fornicator and God saves you, you need to change that situation. Don't remain in that situation. It's not what he's calling you to do. Also, this principle doesn't mean that you are commanded to forever remain in the same circumstances that God saved you in. If you were single when the Lord converted you, you're not commanded to remain single forever. But there should be a healthy waiting upon the Lord and a contentment to serve Him in your singleness until He makes it clear that marriage is His will for your life. If you're not serving God single... What makes you think you're going to want to serve him married? And Paul says, and so ordain I in all churches. Meaning, this wasn't just a limited principle for the Corinthians only. This is his universal teaching in all churches. All churches of his day, all churches of our day, in this church. We need this today. To be content in the station that God has called us in. Uh, And... Some of us think, we we look at situations in our life and we think to ourselves, if I wasn't in this situation, I would do so much more for God. When we need to just quit grumbling about the situation and just serve Him. Just serve Him. So there's the, the instruction. But now I want to give you, secondly, the illustration. The illustration, verse, seven, or verse 18. He says, Is any man... Called being circumcised, let him not become uncircumcised. Is any man called in uncircumcision, let him not be circumcised. Paul uses this illustration here uh, of Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. The, The illustration that he chose to use was, you know, if someone is called as a Jew, Jews were circumcised, they did not need to worry about becoming like a Gentile. And if you're called as a Gentile, you don't need to worry about becoming a Jew. I'm not going to get graphic with this, but if you've studied history in the intertestamental period, you know that the the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew were a, a time of great hardship for the Jews. Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek military leader, persecuted the Jews so much so that there were Jewish men who would have a medical procedure done to make it appear as if they weren't circumcised so that they would blend in with the Gentiles. You know, there was no skin color difference in that intertestamental period. So they, they did that to be able to blend in. Well, in Paul's day, there, there really wasn't much pressure for Jews to become like Gentiles, but there was pressure for Gentiles to become like Jews, the Judaizing influence. We read about that in Galatia. We don't really see that influence so much in the Corinthian church, but it, it could have been there. But what, what probably was there, and really what is, is in our day and age, is this pressure to conform to the culture around you. This pressure to conform to the culture around you. If you, if you move to Tennessee and you join a church in Tennessee, you don't need to feel pressure to conform to Tennessean culture. Because the church of Christ extends far beyond cultural barriers and boundaries. You don't need to feel the need to become 
a Jew or become a Gentile. So Paul teaches, whatever state you're called in, remain there. Remain there. That's the illustration here in verse 18. Uh, Those called being circumcised don't need to be uncircumcised, and those called uncircumcised don't need to be circumcised. Remain how you are called. This would also be an encouragement, a comfort to the Jewish people. Could you imagine a converted Jew? Could you imagine the, the, the guilt, perhaps, the shame that he might feel because it was the Jews that crucified the Messiah? And he now has to realize that I am part of the nation that killed our Lord. And before I was converted, I, I agreed with that. Well, Paul says, you don't need to do away with your Jewish culture, your Jewish ethnicity, because the gospel of Christ overcomes that. But now I want you to see in verse 19, and it seems like we're moving fast, but don't get too excited, because in verse 20 we have to restart. In verse 19 we see the imperative. The imperative. Paul says this, quite interesting. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But the keeping of the commandments of God. Imagine a Jew in the first century hearing that. Circumcision is nothing? Uncircumcision is nothing? The very sign that God Himself gave us to symbolize ourselves as a people for centuries, and you're saying, Paul, that it's nothing? Well, maybe, Paul, what you mean is, um, now that the new covenant has come, circumcision is nothing. No, no. Uh, in the old covenant, circumcision is nothing. In the new covenant, circumcision is nothing. What do you mean it's nothing? It's something God commanded us to do. And Paul would say, exactly. And that's the only reason why it matters. Because it's commanded of God. He said, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But, but, the keeping the commandments of God. The imperative is, brothers and sisters, not outward conformity, not a change in circumstances, but keeping the commandments of God. That is what is important in this text. Some versions will insert, though it's not in the original, it's, it, it's the meaning of the text, they will insert, but keeping the commandment of God is what matters. That's what matters. The physical act of, of circumcision is meaningless. There's nothing inherently righteous about being circumcised. There's nothing inherently unrighteous about being uncircumcised. But it is righteous to keep the commands of God. That is what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, you are so worried about your outward circumstances when you need to be worried about keeping the commandments of God and obeying Him. If you're single, you don't need to be worried about your singleness and finding a spouse and jumping into a marriage. You need to be worried about serving and obeying God. If you are in a a marriage with an unbeliever, you don't need to be worried about, well, my, my lost spouse and they do this and they do that. You need to be worried about keeping the commandments of God. In our day, Paul might come to the church and say something like, church membership is nothing. Baptism is nothing. And we staunch particular Baptists would say, what do you mean baptism is nothing? It's the ordinance that God has given to the New Testament church, and we are to to do it, and God administers His grace through it. But is there anything inherently righteous about being submerged in water? 
no, there's nothing inherently righteous about being submerged in water. We observe it because God commanded it. That's why it's so important. And this sermon's not about baptism, but that's also why I believe that the fact that it's not inherently righteous to be submerged in water is, is actually a reason why we should defend what the Bible teaches about baptism. Because we're not just talking about something we came up with. It's something God commanded us to do. Well, this is God's imperative for your life. Paul's not here talking about circumcision and uncircumcision. He's just using that as an illustration. It's not his primary point. His point is to drive home this imperative. Wherever you're at in life, whatever place the Lord has brought you to, serve Him there. Serve Him there. In singleness or in marriage. In poverty or in riches. Don't consume yourself with changing your circumstances telling yourself this lie that, well, as soon as I change this about my life, I'll serve you then. Consume yourself with serving God and His providence will lead you where He would have you to go. Where He would have you to go. So we come now to verse 20, and Paul repeats himself. It's as if he starts all over to emphasize this message, so we find again the instruction... Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. That's where the title of this message comes. The same calling wherein he was called. Verse 20 is a play on words. And it really highlights, again, that, that the sovereignty of God over the details of your life is the same sovereignty that works out your salvation. The, the calling that you are called in. God does not save you in a vacuum. When God saves you, you have a set of circumstances around your life. And yes, being in Christ changes your identity. Yes, being in Christ um, converts your heart. The kingdom of God is within you. But it does not erase those outward circumstances. You're still married. You're still a parent. You're still in these outward circumstances. You're calling here. The calling in verse 20 refers to the station in life that the Lord has brought you to, but the past tense verb, called, has the same meaning that it had earlier in the text, refers to that one-time, definitive, regenerating call of God. One of the ways, uh, as you're interpreting Scripture, one of the ways that you can differentiate is that there is only one, one effectual call. You only receive that call one time. Why? Because it's effectual. You don't need to receive it a second time. But the Lord might call you, plural, you might have many callings. You might in one stage be called to, to do a certain job in a certain city, and you might be called to move and live elsewhere. You might be called to one church or called to another, but uh, those one-time definitive use of the term called always refers to your salvation. And God did not make a mistake with either of those callings. This passage is a call to contentment with the good providence of God. He works all things together for our good. But how easily we forget that. Discontentment and faithful service cannot reside together in the same heart. If your every thought is, I wish I made more money. I wish I had a different job. I wish I lived somewhere else. I wish I had a wife. I wish I had the, I wish this wasn't the case. I wish that wasn't the case. I wish this were different. 
you will cripple yourself to a place in which you will not serve God. You won't serve Him where you are. You will even convince yourself that you can't serve God where you are. But instead of focusing on how to change your circumstances to what you think is best, you should instead be focused on how you can live for God's glory right where you are. No one, no one has ever been in a place in which they couldn't serve God. If, if Think about the life of Paul. We'll see that in a minute. Think about the life of Paul. If Paul could find contentment and serve God in all that he went through, so can you. So can you. Discontentment in the providence of God is also a manifestation of spiritual immaturity. It shows the sign of a of a weak believer. And that's what we had in the Corinthian church. That's why Paul said earlier, several chapters ago, that he wanted to give them the meat, but he couldn't. He had to talk to them as babes in Christ. Paul said in Philippians 4, in verse 11, he said, For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. We find from that verse that contentment was not something that came natural to Paul. Contentment was something that he had to learn. Contentment is something that you have to learn, that I have to learn. We have to work at being content. By the way, Paul said that in Philippians from prison, from a Roman prison, chained in prison. He said, I have learned to be content with where I am. Paul didn't have the attitude of, Lord, I've given my life for you. I've served you. I've gone over the world for you, and you've brought me to prison? No, he said, Lord, I'm content with where you've led me. He didn't languish around, spending all of his time thinking about how to get out of jail. He didn't throw himself a pity party. Woe is me, the great apostle to the Gentiles, stuck in prison. His attitude was, Lord, here's where you've led me. Here's where I am. Sitting here in prison. By your good providence. How might I live for your glory? Even here. I confess that I don't have that attitude. Many times. That's the attitude we should seek to have. Well, if we just had more members then we could really serve God at this church. Well, if we had a bigger building, think of all the things we could do. Well, if you had a better pastor, your spirituality would be in a better shape. All those things are true. And again, this isn't saying that we we shouldn't pray for and seek those things in a God-honoring, patient way. But if we tell ourselves that that we can't serve God until X, Y, or Z, we'll never serve Him. Because as soon as we get X, Y, or Z, then we'll say, you know, Lord, we can't serve you until we have 30 members. Then it'll be, Lord, we can't serve you until we have 50 members. Lord, we can't... We'll never stop. Discontentment has no end. It's an open vacuum. Never fulfilled. Never satisfied. Let me say something as your pastor. I am thankful to God that he has planted a church right here in Paris, Tennessee. 
my heart is content to be here. I don't want to move this church to another city. I don't want to move myself to another church. Is Paris the new heavens and the new earth? No. But it's where God has us. And I'm not saying this to offend, but I hear comments from Christians about how they dislike Paris and how they they don't want to live here, how West Tennessee is a terrible place. Well, A, I primarily hear those comments from young people who have never lived anywhere else and don't stop to think that there are other people who have lived other places and have prayed for the Lord to be able to send them to a place like this and are very thankful to be here. But B, you know, if that is your attitude, perhaps in the providence of God, He will move you elsewhere. But right now, this is where you are. And your priority needs to be serving God here. And this kind of contentment is something that we have to learn as God grants us spiritual maturity. We have to learn that contentment. Pastors have to learn that contentment. You know, if, if you have a pastor and his mindset is always, I can't wait until I pastor this, you know, big large church with uh, a big parsonage and a pastoral corner office and preach to 200 people every Sunday, do you think he's going to be a good shepherd where he is? Not only that, but he really has no place shepherding anywhere if that's his mindset. Churches are not stepping stones for pastors. There's a lot of pastors that need to understand that. So that's the instruction Paul restates for us in verse 20. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Be content with where you are until the Lord, by His grace, by His providence, makes it clear to you that He's leading you elsewhere. You know how you will know practically if the Lord, if, you, if you're really content with where you are, if the Lord is really leading you somewhere, um, you won't, you won't just, when you feel an inclination to, to do something and to go, you won't just immediately jump to it. You'll consider it. You'll be patient about it. You'll pray over it. You won't make a snap decision. because Why? Because you're content with where you are. You're not purposefully going out looking and seeking change. You're content with where you are. And the Lord will have to convince you that this really is His will for your life. You won't just jump right into it. But those who just jump right into this thing and jump right into that thing, they show that they really don't have much contentment in their life. We see this instruction, and then in verses 21 and 22, we see another illustration. So he gave the Jew-Gentile illustration. Now he gives this illustration in verse 21. He says, Art thou called being a servant? Servant there is the word for slave. Art thou called being a slave? In Paul's day, one-third of the Roman population were slaves. Another third of the Roman population were former slaves that had been freed, and only a third of the population were born free. So there was almost definitely someone in the Corinthian church that was a slave and was born a slave and had attained their freedom. Slavery then was very different than our idea of chattel slavery today. Completely different institution, but nevertheless it was slavery. 
And Paul uses, as an illustration, the lowest echelon of society. He says, were you saved as a slave? Were you a slave when God saved you? And then he says this radical statement. He says, care not for it. Were you in slavery when the Lord saved you? Well, don't worry about it. Don't worry about being a slave. This is the high calling of the Christian ethic. And it is so backwards to our natural thinking of our selfish world. We don't, we don't understand this kind of mentality. The Bible says that if God saves you as a slave, you should care more about glorifying God in your slavery than you should about your own freedom. That's what it says. Were you called being a slave? Don't worry about it. Care not for it. The gospel came to revolutionize hearts, not social institutions. Now, we live in a post-slavery society. It's hard for us to understand just how radical this is because none of us have ever seen a slave, in this country anyways. None of us have ever owned one either. Or should we, okay? <laughs> Let somebody take that soundbite off of sermon audio and twist it around. But this illustration really takes away all of our excuses, doesn't it? I mean, if God can call a slave to be content in him and serve him in his slavery, is there anything we could ever go through that we shouldn't serve God in the midst of? See, we become frustrated with God when we think we deserve more than we do. And we might not vocalize it out loud, but oftentimes we have this sinful mindset of, well, God, if you want me to serve you, then you'll give me this, this, and this. God, if you want me to serve you, you'll move me to a new location. You'll give me that new job. You'll give me a spouse. God, if you want me to serve you, you'll free me from slavery. God says, no, you serve me where you are because I am worthy of your service. That's why you serve me. We don't serve God because of the things that he gives us. We serve him because he's God, because of who he is. And it's easy for us to say cute little sayings like, Lord, no matter what you call me to, I promise to always serve you. But we say that as people that really haven't been called to too much hardship. I say that as someone who's not really been called to too much hardship. Sometimes the AC goes out in here. And I say, we're still going to serve God and have church on Sunday. The kingdom of God doesn't go forward, though, as we're liberated from our hardships. You see, the kingdom of God advances as God saves sinners and as His people live for His glory. And a slave, living in slavery, serving God, brings Him great glory. What's primary in the Christian life is not fixing society, pursuing our own interests, bettering our lives. What's primary is living a life centered in the gospel of Christ, no matter where we may find ourselves physically. It's the greatest example of this principle. Is it not our Lord Jesus Christ? Think of Him. The Son of Man didn't have a place to lay His head. His friends forsook Him. He was betrayed by the very people He came to save beaten and mocked, scourged, bloodied, 
and crucified. Did he receive the treatment he deserved? Were the circumstances of his life ideal? Did he live in a righteous society that honored God? Did he have peer pressure? Well, he, it was worse. He was tempted of the devil himself. Did he use any of those as excuses? No, he, he didn't. His mission was not social reform, nor was it personal gain. His mission was to glorify God, and that's what he did. In his life and in his death, he did always those things which pleased the Father. Bible says in Hebrews 12, he just despised the shame. He wouldn't allow it to be used as an excuse. And we like to say things like, if God called me to be a martyr, I would suffer and die for Jesus. Really? If you won't live for Jesus at the job he's called you to, or with the spouse he's called you to, what makes you think that you'd live for him in circumstances that were truly perilous? This is a hard text when we really consider it. I, this, this text had to sort through my own heart with the situation that we've been going through. And I have to confess that many times I fail to have this mindset. Working a, a full-time job and trying to fulfill my obligations at church and at home. Saying things to myself like, well, I, I'll do better when I freed from this circumstance. And yes, it's true that there's more opportunities, but I need to be content to serve God wherever I am. Whatever station He's called me to, you need to be content to serve God in whatever He's called you to. Notice, also in verse, in verse 21, He says, but if thou mayest be made free, talk, going back to the servant, the slave illustration, but if thou mayest be made free, see, God does not command that a slave must remain perpetually in his slavery. That's not the point of the principle. God isn't saying, well, if you're saved as a slave, it's locked in, you're a slave forever. Just like God doesn't command you to remain perpetually under your current circumstances. I quit my job Friday and I'm, I didn't sin by doing that. But notice that Paul says, if thou mayest be made free. Not if you have the opportunity to escape. Not if you can forcibly free yourself by assaulting your master or whatever the case may be. He says, if you may be made free. If a, if a God-ordained opportunity for your freedom comes about... And I'm not going to go down the rabbit trail of ethics in ancient slavery... I simply want to point out to you that Paul doesn't encourage slaves to pursue freedom through violence, force, or any other sinful means. If you ever read the book of Philemon, when Paul meets Onesimus, a runaway slave who had stolen from his master, and Onesimus hears the gospel and is saved, and what does Paul do? He says, well, now that you're saved, you're a free man. No, he says, go back to your master, Philemon. The stuff you stole, just tell them to put it on my charge. But go back to him and serve him in your slavery. Again, we, we, we have to make the distinction between ancient slavery and what we think of with the chattel slavery that occurred in our country 200 years ago because those institutions were very different. 
But why does, why does Paul give this instruction? Because the glory of God is more important than our own personal liberties, comforts, and even well-being. It is. The glory of God is more important than us being comfortable. The glory of God is more important than us having it easy in life all the time. You know, it feels almost kind of awkward preaching this sermon in the western most advanced country in, in the world at a period where Christians have it unprecedentedly easy. Because we really don't understand what this means. Not the way some of our forefathers have understood it. It's easy to preach contentment in, in, in our day and age, but could you, could you imagine preaching contentment in the days when Christians were thrown in the Colosseums to be eaten by lions? And Paul would say, if you're in those chains and those bonds, you don't need to violently overthrow uh, the Roman government. You need to serve God where you are and pray that God would change hearts. Could you imagine preaching this in the, the dark ages when the Roman Catholic Church was going about Europe and Asia and Africa persecuting true believers? Could you imagine Could you imagine Bloody Mary as she is as she is murdering Christians, murdering Protestants? Could you imagine preaching and telling your congregation, "Be content, be content." Yet that's what Paul does in his day and age. He says, "If you may be free, use it rather." What's the it? Your freedom. So he says, if you're enslaved, glorify God in your slavery. But if you have the opportunity to be free, be free. And then glorify God in your freedom. Do you see the priority here? It's not your place in life. Your place in life is irrelevant. The priority is serving God wherever he's called you to be. Wherever he's called you to be. I think when we get to heaven, not that it will... Not that it will be exactly like this anyways, but when we get to heaven, we start to think about the saints of God, the mighty men and women of God that were so mightily used and brought so much glory and honor to Him. I don't think we're going to be seeing George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. and We will be seeing those men. I think we'll be seeing men that the world never knew, that suffered for Christ in unimaginable ways that never were written about in history books, that are forgotten and unknown, that brought glory to God because they served Him in the midst of their circumstances. Verse 22, Paul goes on and he says, For he that is called in the Lord, being a slave, being a servant, is what? The Lord's free man. Likewise also, he that is called being free is Christ's servant. If you're called as a slave, remember your freedom in Christ. And if you're called free, remember your slavery to Christ. But either way, you are His. In this church, we have folks all over life's spectrum. We have a retired cop. We have a stay-at-home mom. We have a mobile home salesman. We have college students. 
And in this context, none of that matters. What matters is, are you serving God in that station? If you're retired, remember, you're still called to work in the Lord. If you're in the workforce, remember that you have rest in Christ. If you're single, remember that you're the bride of Christ. If you're married, remember that you stand alone before God. Your, your salvation does not rest upon the faith of your family. See, the application here is that whatever condition you find yourself in, your life is obligated to the glory of Christ. We're all slaves. We're all free. That's what Paul is saying. So there's the second illustration, and then the third imperative in verses 23 and 24. And by the way, we need verses 23 and 24. Because Paul has been really rough on us thus far. But this section closes with such great encouragement. How can God call us to serve Him no matter what? How can God expect us to live for Him regardless of our circumstances? Lord, don't you know what you're calling me to? Don't you know how hard it is, this this burden that I have to bear? What does God say to us in verse 23? He says, ye are bought with a price. How can God call us to serve Him in the midst of our circumstances? Because Christian, He purchased you with His own blood upon Calvary's cross. And how shall He that spared not His own Son not also freely give us all things? All things that we need for service and and living for His honor and glory. The service that He commands you to render unto Him doesn't come from a place of bondage. It doesn't... We don't, we don't serve God. We don't obey the law under a covenant of works, but as a rule of a redeemed life. It comes from a sense that God loved you and died for you and redeemed you and He bought you and now He owns you so that you are not bound by your circumstances. What is slavery to an earthly master if you know that you belong, you belong to the God of heaven? What is singleness on earth if you know that Jesus Christ is your eternal bride? Or you you are His eternal bride? What is poverty in this life if you know that all the riches of heaven are yours? What are hardships and sorrow now if you know that eternal joy is awaiting you? You're bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself. You don't live for yourself. You don't die to yourself. You are His. And so He says, Be not ye the servants of men. And what He's saying here is not not talking about slavery. It's a similar wording, but really what He's talking about is don't be enslaved to this worldly mentality, this unchristian view of life that compels you to feel that you need to change your circumstances. Don't be enslaved to that. You have freedom in Christ. You don't have to complain about your job like all your lost co-workers do. You don't have to complain about your singleness the way all of your lost friends do. They complain because they have no hope. If, If you are here without Christ, you should be complaining because your life right now is as good as it's ever going to get. But oh, how that is not true for you, Christian. Your struggles are so momentary. Your life is so brief. Your hardships are but for a moment. 
yeah, He's called you to stay married to an unbeliever for the next 20, 30, 40 years, but He's also said, I'm betrothed to you and I will be with you forever. The pressures of life begin to discourage you and they begin to hinder your devotion to God. Remember your identity in Christ. Consider all He's done. Consider all He will do. Consider who He is for you. In Christ, you're not a waitress making minimum wage with an alcoholic father and an absent mother. In Christ, you're not unequally yoked in a marriage with estranged children and unbelieving family that want nothing to do with you. It might be who you are temporally upon this earth, but that's not who you are in Christ. In Christ, you are a joint heir with the Son of God. You are a member of God's family. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Remember who you are in Christ and live like it. Live like it. We, we live in the midst of two kingdoms as Christians. We have this, this locality on earth, but this citizenship in heaven, and sometimes it's hard to, to balance that out. Don't let the world rob you of the joy that comes from a life lived to the glory of God. And so Paul concludes where he began in verse 24. He says, Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Another reason why you can serve God in your circumstances is because God abides with you in the midst of them. You're not alone in those hardships anymore. And yes, Think about your future inheritance. Think about all that you will, you will enter into. But think about what you have now. And no matter where you are, no matter what the Lord has called you to, you have the sufficiency of Scripture. You have the indwelling power of the Spirit. You have the power of God upon your life. You have the grace of God to sustain you. You have the protection of God to keep you. He is with you through every trial, through every hardship. He is with you in every circumstance. Therefore, you do not need to focus on changing your outward condition. You need to focus on Him. Focus on the God who says, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Focus on the God who says, I will not spare mine own son to purchase you. Focus on the God who says, I am yours, and you are mine. And as we focus upon Him, and as we make His glory our priority, He will see that we are granted the contentment that we need to serve Him where we are. Well, thus far, these admonitions have been applied exclusively to believers. That, that is who this text is written to. God's instruction to Christians is to remain where you are, but... I'm going to close by saying this. God's counsel to unbelievers, however, is completely different. Completely different. If you are here without Christ, do not remain as you are. Do not be content with your sin. Do not remain lost in your sins without God in the world, having no hope. You you will never find satisfaction in a life that is lived for yourself and your own honor, and your own glory. You will be miserable all the days of your life. Your depression will not go away. Your sadness will not go away. Your longing to achieve materialism will not go away. You will never find happiness. You will never find true joy. 
If you remain as you are, don't remain as you are if you are not in Christ. Rather, come to Him. And surrender yourself before Him. Receive Him through faith. Don't merely add a little bit of Christianity on top of everything else, but become a sold and purchased slave of Christ, constrained by His love. Understand that He has died for sinners such as you. And He has secured a full atonement. And today He stands ready and able to receive all those who come unto Him through repentance and faith. So for the Christian, yes, remain as you are. Serve Christ where you are. But for the unbeliever, don't remain as you are. Don't be content with your sinful condition and don't believe the lie that that there is no grace for you or no hope for you. Come unto Christ. He will give you contentment to serve Him in a newness of life. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name this morning for the Word of God as it speaks to us even in this passage that is seemingly parenthetical and many would read it and say, surely there's not much for us here, but yet we find in your word that there's an abundance of grace and mercy to be found for saints and sinners alike. Apply this text to our heart and Lord, give us the contentment to serve you where we are. May I never grumble or complain against your providence in my life. Help me to be thankful for where you have me and to seek to serve you to the best of my abilities with all that you've given. In Jesus' name, we do pray and thank you. Amen. Amen. Amen.